0: Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you for uh, your kindness to us and sending Christ to uh, pay our sin debt on the cross, and that when we trust in him, we can be uh, completely righteous in him, and uh, we just ask that tonight you'd give us understanding of Esther and help us to uh, see your good hand at work uh, behind the scenes, and uh, that we would grow in our trust for you as you are God who um, always keeps his promises, and so help us uh, to trust you. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, you can turn over to Esther. Everyone get a note packet? There's probably some more in the back if anybody needs one. All right, Francis. So we start out this class in the book of Ezra, and Ezra one through six occurs, and then we pick it up Uh, chronologically in between Ezra 6 and 7 in Esther. So let's just look at our chart again because this just helps us remember where we're at. In the Old Testament timeline, we're in the time of uh, the restoration of the kingdom. So the kingdom has been divided into the northern and southern, and then the southern went into captivity into Babylon. It was taken over by Persia. And then that group went back to Jerusalem together with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, And during that time, Ezra and Nehemiah were written um, and also Haggai and Zechariah. But Esther occurs right in the middle of Ezra. So we're gonna look at that uh, tonight and the next couple weeks here. Uh, So where are we at? Um, This is in the same timeline as Ezra, but it's in a different location. So most of Ezra is them leaving Persia and going back to Jerusalem. Esther is the same kind of time frame, but it jumps back to Persia. So it occurs there with King uh, Xerxes. So you can see here, this is what we've studied so far in Ezra and then Ezra stopped back here somewhere. And then we're picking it up right here in about 486 when Xerxes becomes king. So the first lines of Esther say he's been king for I think it's two or three years um, already. I can't remember, but um, as you might remember, uh, the queen Vashti is demoted and then Esther becomes queen and so we're going to look at all of that um, those 10, ten or so years there eight years and it's like the first two chapters it happens really fast so there's a lot of time that occurs in there that we'll see uh, and then Esther ends at 473 BC and then that goes back to the book of Ezra and that's where we'll finish the class in November so here's where we're at we're in the part two of our three-part series. So remember, they they went into captivity. They go back and they're trying to restore the kingdom. They want the temple uh, built again so they can have the kingdom. And God kept them safe for those 70 years. He kept a remnant and He brings them back to the land. And unbeknownst to them, they're off in Jerusalem doing their thing. And back in Persia, Haman is trying to have all the Jews killed. So that's kind of where Esther, the book of Esther shows up, is God working to keep all the Jews alive when they almost all die. So that's what's at stake in the book of Esther is Haman wants all Jews in the land of Persia, which is pretty much uh, the whole known world at that time, pretty much only, uh, the only place that Jews would have been. He wanted the king to pass a law that you could kill any Jew and pillage their stuff. That's what Haman's trying to have happen. He wants genocide. He wants all the Jews killed. And so that would have included the Jews back in Jerusalem. So there's a lot at stake here. <laughs> and those people wouldn't have had any idea until that uh, edict from the king showed up and said, I'm giving everyone permission to kill you. Uh, so it's, it's a wild uh, series of events, but lot of fun looking at it. Uh, So yeah, the background of the book of Esther, um, kind of in an introductory format, Esther is one of those books uh, that's unique in a certain way. So God's name is never mentioned. Um, God is not mentioned at all. There's no religious activity uh, to note. Uh, There's one little section where Mordecai uh, shows that he has faith that God will keep his promise to Israel. But... What we see in the timeline as a whole as we are kind of zoomed out looking at Ezra and Esther is we see how um, God just plans everything and even when we don't understand how he's working, he's making it all fit together perfectly. So you think about like Vashti, the queen, being demoted because the king's drunk. It's just like this silly thing that happens. But it's God providing a space to insert Esther to save Israel is what God is doing. And so it's this really cool behind-the-scenes look at how God works um, in these crazy ways to do whatever he wants. Um, something like this happened to me the other day. Uh, in our kids' classes, they're learning about how God made dinosaurs tonight. And I was kind of like, why do we need a whole lesson on dinosaurs? <laughs> I kind of had a bad attitude about it. And, uh, <laughs> which is really bad, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, in Job 40 and 41, Job, or God is talking to Job and he's saying it's all that part about where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth. But he talks about behemoth and Leviathan there and he describes them and how there's the, these awesome, magnificent beasts and you know, who are you to question me, Job? So anyways, I, wrote, I write a little like, take-home sheet for the parents um, so I was familiar with what the lesson was about for this week. So I was writing that last week in preparation for this week. But then on Wednesday, on Thursday, I was talking to a gentleman who I didn't think I was going to see again, but I had had several conversations with and I wanted to see if he wanted to do a Bible study. Um, He's not a believer. And so Thursday, he he was going to stop by and I was like, here he comes. This is my perfect opportunity to to see if he wants to um, do a Bible study with me. And so I asked him and he pretty much said no. And he was explaining how, you know, any, you know, he thinks that all religious systems are good in their own right, that someone who believes in this God to take them to heaven is fine for them. And he said he doesn't believe that the Bible's true. That's why it's called the greatest story ever told. And uh, then he went on to say, like the dinosaurs, like where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? And I was just like, I know. I know, because I wrote the kids' lesson summary yesterday. And it was just this, like, exactly what, what God does. Is he just, you know, seemingly random series of events. Um, and I'm like, actually, in Job, 40 and 41. And, and so I start describing how God describes one of the dinosaurs. And he's like, oh, is that? And he, like, named one of the dinosaurs. And I'm like, yeah. So we just had this, like, funny conversation about one of the objections he had To God's word because I had studied that and so it was just really cool to see God work all that out so I don't know what God's plan is for that individual but I hope that uh, he trusts the Lord so we'll see Um, so thinking about Esther that's kind of what happens in this book is there's a lot we don't know about it but you can clearly see uh, God orchestrating things to keep everyone alive his people alive so here's some facts about it We don't know who wrote it. Um, That's what I know. (laughs) Uh, The events occur between 486 and 473 BC. So this is about 50 years after the first exile expedition. So that chart kind of lined that up for us at the beginning there. But there's a gap between Ezra 6 and then this starting up, and then there'll be a gap again between uh, the end of, Esther and the start of Ezra 7 um, many godly Jews like Daniel remained in Persia instead of returning to Jerusalem um, so this is pretty cool um, account of Daniel so even though he stayed in uh, Persia kind of we talked a little bit about Daniel throughout our, our class here he he, his heart was in Jerusalem. So what that verse talks about is it just says that Daniel would pray, right? That's what we know about Daniel. And where, which direction would he pray towards? Jerusalem. Towards Jerusalem. So Daniel 6.10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So, for the Jewish people, Jerusalem is everything. Jerusalem is the city, you know, the nation's capital, um, where God um, resides in the temple. And so you can see it obviously there with Daniel that even though he was displaced, his heart was still in Jerusalem. He he would rather be there. But God had him remain in Persia. And so, as we come to Esther, it's a little uh, uh, abnormal that. These the the Jews we're gonna look at in Esther don't have a desire to return to Jerusalem. Um, And they're also not practicing Jews. So we're gonna try and work through that and there's a couple possible um, answers to to those things. So here's some of the abnormalities of the book. So no mention is made of God in Esther. Uh, There's no religious activities recorded. And the focus is very much on the physical survival of the Jews. So it's pretty unique in this way. Um, It's pretty heavily contrasted from our study of Ezra, for instance, where throughout that book it says, and God turned the heart of the king to do this. You know, the perspective is very, like, right in your face that God is doing this. Um, Esther is more cloaked. We see things happening and working out in the right way, But it's not said exactly that God is the one doing that. So I'm not going to give you all the answers of why that is. Uh, I have my opinions that we can discuss in a minute. But as we looked at in in Ezra, there was a desire of those Jews to return to Jerusalem, to go back and obey and follow God's promise to restore the remnant to Jerusalem. Uh, They desired to have the kingdom again. And so we list those three things in Ezra. You know, they wanted a Davidic king. They had Zerubbabel. They needed a temple and priests and sacrifices and the law and, and, you know, keep the covenant with God. And so there's all these facets that are at the core of being a faithful Jew that don't come up in the book of Esther. And so that's um, it's very interesting. I don't, I don't have a great answer of why that is, um, but it's just different from even the contemporary books that it's written. So I think one solution is that you know, these are Jews that have been, you know, all they know is captivity, all they know is Persian life. They've been so um, encapsulated by the culture of Persia that they've forgotten a lot of uh, who they are as the Jewish people. And so they, they don't have that desire anymore. They don't have the desire to go to Jerusalem. It's been lost. Uh, it hasn't, that, that hasn't been passed down, passed down to them as something valuable. So there's kind of three ways to uh, read the book of Esther. Um, so when I was a kid, we, I was taught that Esther and Mordecai were godly individuals and like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood up for what was right in a foreign land, and uh, were believers in in the God of Israel. I think they they have some faith, but they're not. Uh, it's not really strong faith. So, really, the only expression of faith we have from either of them is in, is in Esther chapter four, and this is kind of the the linchpin of the whole book. This is where Mordecai expresses faith in God's providence and faith that God will keep his promise to his people. Uh, So, Esther 4.13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this is the most famous couple verses in the book of Esther, and rightly so. And I think we see from Mordecai Mordecai here, faith in God's promise to Abraham and then through Moses to preserve his people um, no matter what the circumstances look like. So he says, even if you don't stand up and do this, Esther, God can bring about deliverance from somewhere else. And so I think that's an act of faith on his part. And then Esther uh, replies to him in uh, verse 16. She says, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat or drink for three days, uh, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So, I think there, there's aspects to uh, the story that show that they that they believed that they were Jewish, and that the God of Israel was their God. But throughout the text, we don't see them behaving like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. So you remember when Daniel was taken captive into Babylon, he said, "I'm not going to eat the foreign food, right? I'm a Jew." And that was a big deal for him to do that. And and the guy who was over him was like, but you're going to be weaker than all the others. And he's like, well, let's see. When we come to Esther, when she's taken into the king's palace, she's told to hide her identity by Mordecai. And so that means she's taking, you know, she's eating the Persian food. She's worshiping the Persian God um, with everybody else. You know, she goes in with the king and they don't play Monopoly all night. Uh, You know, there's bad things that that go on here. And uh, we're not really given any commentary on it. It's just left silent. And even when she calls for the fast, she's not telling them to pray to God to give her courage or to deliver her. She just calls for a fast. And so even the Jews in Jesus' day who rejected Jesus, you know, they fasted. Um, So I'm not trying to, like, undercut uh, your belief in the Bible, but even if they're not great people, God is great. (laughs) So um, we're all weak and we're all sinful. We all have little faith and anything good that happens is because God does it and he does it through us. So uh, there's kind of three approaches that we can read Esther. So I'll offer those to you. So the first one is the most um, uncommon one. So these are in your notes. While Esther and Mordecai show high moral courage, they do not actually believe in the God of Israel. God uses godless Israel to save godless Israel. So this was the view of uh, several people you can see there. Um, So that's one way that you can interpret it because it's left um, without being interpreted uh, in the text. Kind of the middle ground is that Esther and Mordecai have weak faith, so God still uses them to save his people from extermination. So like we read in chapter 4 there, that Mordecai says, I know that you know, if you don't stand up and do this, he doesn't say God will raise someone else up. He just says someone, you know help will arise from somewhere else. And so maybe that's uh, faith by him. And so even though they're not practicing Jews, desiring to go to Jerusalem, following after God, Um, perhaps they still have faith. And then the more common one is number three, Esther and Mordecai are strong believers in the God of Israel who show their faith by being courageous in the face of danger. God uses his faithful people to save his whole nation. So I'm not going to tell you what to think about this. You can think what you want. (laughs) So uh, I do believe that Esther and Mordecai are heroes. Uh, for the nation of Israel, and God does use them to save Israel, and that is valuable. My encouragement would be is to trust the God who, who's the one working here and uh, doing that. Uh, poor Aaron's teaching next week, and I didn't warn about this, so you can teach it any way you want. I'm going to kind of take a middle ground where they they do love the God of Israel, and they're trying um, and they have weak faith, but they are seeking to follow after God. Uh, I would, I do lean a little bit towards number one, so if it comes out that way, I'm sorry, but you're welcome to have your own thoughts about the book of Esther. Uh, the next thing on your second page there, so I think this is partially where our potential misunderstanding of the book of Esther arises. I think part of it is confusing it with Daniel, so like Daniel, uh, or no, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and they're thrown in the fiery furnace, and they're faithful. They say, I'm not going to follow your gods. I'm going to follow the God of Israel. And then we see Mordecai say, I'm not going to bow to you, Haman, but he doesn't say because I don't, you know, I only bow to my God. Uh, So... What we have in the Apocrypha is a, uh, six chapters that were written hundreds of years later after the book of Esther to kind of give more light on the events of what happened in Esther. So we don't believe these are uh, biblical in the Bible sense. They're not part of the, the church canon or the, the Bible canon. And I think what happens here is I think Israel rightly so, sees Mordecai and Esther as a hero and a heroine. And so they look back and kind of add in stuff to make them look better. So listen to these words in uh, the Apocrypha edition in Esther 13.12. So this is Mordecai praying to God, which already doesn't fit Esther because God is not mentioned in Esther. Thou knowest all things, and thou knowest, Lord, that it was neither in contempt nor pride nor for any desire of glory that I did not bow down to proud Haman. For I could have been content with good will for the salvation of Israel to kiss the soles of his feet. But I did this. This I might not prefer, the glory of man above the glory of God. Neither will I worship any but thee, O God. Neither will I do it in pride. So that very well could have been what Haman was thinking when he didn't bow down to Haman. But I don't think we should trust the Apocrypha. So, we got to come to our own conclusion apart from it. And I think the Apocrypha may have given us a slant on uh, taking it a certain way as we read the book of Esther historically. Because in times past, that would have been a more acceptable historical reading of what, uh, a good commentary on what actually happened um, in this time. Does anyone have any questions on that? I don't want to like pop everyone's bubble, but
1: city was a fast Other other religions, if I can say that way, religions didn't fast that we know
0: of. Right.
1: So there had to be some kind of a tie to a Jewish.
0: Right. That is really interesting, um, especially because she has her, I think she has her handmaidens do it with her, who would have been Persians. They wouldn't have been Jews. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's a really good point, Raleigh. That
1: was a question. Oh. That wasn't the point,
0: it was a good question. <laughs> it, it made a point in my mind. So so that is great. As we study through this, as we observe things. No, that's good that um, that come up, I would love to change my opinion about that. So <laughs> Oh man.
1: Did mortar guys sit at the gate and the guy
0: Haman? Or, yeah, wasn't he mad at him? Yes. He them? Yes. Doing Yeah, that's actually how this all happens. Is Haman's mad at Mordecai, so he wants to kill Mordecai's people. Right. So, yep.
1: Yeah, Jim. I think. I think if we set aside the idea of whether they're Jews or not, yeah, or whether they believe in God or not. I think a good thing for me today is, through this chapter and story, we find that God uses people to get his plan done. Right. Right. They may not all be, quote, Christians. They may not be all God-fearing people, but God has a plan. Yes. And as Mordecai says, and I think I put this on my shirt pocket, if you don't do it, God's gonna have somebody else do it. Right. Now, do you want glory for obedience to God or do you want to watch something else happen that somebody else is going to do? So I think for today's living right. I'm it's encouraged very helpful. by yeah. the Esther's, you know, and Mordecai because God used them. Right. Who no matter who they were, right. God used them to get the job done and I think he does that today.
0: Right. And there's godly characteristics that come up. So the, the self denial, self sacrifice of Esther to risk that, she knew she was risking, you know, being killed, um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, Ruth Ann. Ruth. We're staying Ruth and Esther, my
1: travel partner and I. Ruth, they weren't even supposed to go and they were not to marry people no Boabna. Yep. And they were not allowed in the temple, yet God allowed her to be in Christ. Right. Because Bela's was. A from the tribe of Judah, Yep. and it was all in God's master
0: plan. Yep, exactly. And so you want to go look up my Old Testament uh, syllabus so from Dr. Whitcomb, because I am yes. teaching that, so I'll have to look it up and see. Well, I have his book said, in the office if you want to look at it. So. No, this was in
1: 66. Sure. So maybe he, I don't
0: know. Yeah, I don't I know when he wrote the book. I not
1: remember
0: that, but I'll look it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So just like you said, Jim, um, you know what's the point of the book? Even when God's people forget His promises, God does not, right? So here's these people that, of their fault or their parents' fault or their parents' fault, have stopped passing along faith in God. And uh, God hasn't forgotten His promises. He, he continues to be faithful to what He said He'll do. And just like... Right. In the beginning, right.
1: maybe there were this point. And mm-hmm. then she did heal and do what God told her to do right. when, about Haman and telling the king about what to do. so Yes. So God changes people and uses them. <laughs> right.
0: Yep. And it would be fun if we could kind of see, you know, what happens with Esther along the line, but... We only have a short snippet of, of where they're at. Good. Um, so some of the things I was thinking through today uh, as we get into this. In Esther, the king is mostly referred to as Ahasuerus, which is the Hebrew representation of his name. The Greek representation is Xerxes. So Ahasuerus and Xerxes are the same person. And then his Persian name, I don't even know how to pronounce this. It's like Kashearsha. I don't know, I don't speak Persian. so <laughs> I can't remember if that comes up in the text or not, but that's the same guy as well. So the, the main four characters are the king, Haman, and Esther, and Mordecai. So when we think about stories, you know, usually there's a protagonist, and antagonist, and other characters. Who would be the antagonist of our story? Haman. Haman. Yep, exactly. Who would be the protagonist?
1: <laughs>
0: I think it's Mordecai. I think we often think it's Esther, but Mordecai is the one that instigates Esther to, to go and be brave for her people. And then even Esther convincing the king to work against Mordecai is an extension of uh, Mordecai encouraging Esther. I got lost in that somehow. So, yeah. But I think both Esther and Mordecai are both heroes. So Mordecai's a hero, Esther's a heroine of the story. And we see that uh, true today in uh, the Jewish people's life. They celebrate the holiday Purim, I think is how you say it. And that's the celebration of when God delivered his people from Haman. And you read about that at the end of Esther. So, yeah, I read one description of it where... The i got to be careful how I say this. You keep uh, consuming things that intoxicate you until you can't tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. Um, so there's <laughs> young ears in here. But yeah, that's what they do, I guess, on Purim, which sounds very godly, but that's what they do. Okay, let's jump into Ezra, Esther, not Ezra, Esther today, chapter 1, and uh, work through chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, and uh, I'll have some summary points up here, so King Ahasuerus becomes queenless, that's what chapter 1's about, oh man, so starting in verse 1, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants and the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So we start out here with, them having a party. So this is most likely a military planning get-together because right after this, he sets out with his soldiers and they attack Greece. Uh, So that's probably partially what's going on here is he's gathering um, all his officials together to make a plan to invade Greece because his dad Darius had been defeated by Greece. And so he's been waiting years to get his revenge. And we read about this in Daniel 11-2 actually. Uh, there's a description of Ahasuerus there and a description of him having been predicted by Daniel to attack Greece. So let me read Daniel eleven two. That'd be a good verse to write down. <coughs> Uh, So this is Daniel prophesying. He says, Now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. So the fourth is Xerxes. So he's the richest Persian king of them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So this is being, Daniel's being fulfilled right now in Esther. So, they're most likely making plans over these 180 days to invade Greece. And then there's a second party, I think, after they make their plans. And this is one to celebrate. So, uh, this one, they drink the whole time. So, by the end, they are uh, very intoxicated. So, in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white uh, yeah, I'm gonna keep there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, tur- turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So they're just having... This is the real party, right? This is the... uh, They're just doing whatever they want. The king is giving them all, um, anything they could want. And during this one, he's really showing off the riches. So he's got, you know... Really uh, splendid things hung up everywhere. Uh, His castle's amazing. He's showing that he is the richest Persian king of all. Uh, So then we kind of come to this awkward point in the text where it wasn't enough for him to show all of his riches. He wants to show uh, all the men his wife. So in verse 9, it says, Queen Vashti also made a feast. Sorry, this is different. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the women were also celebrating um, in, a, in the palace as well. And then we come to this next part. So the intoxicated or drunk king acts foolishly and loses control of his queen. So there's a bit of irony here where he's trying to show off his, all of his control, all of his riches, all of his powers, and his wife tells him no which as the king is not great, which is why uh, the, his people with him are like, you got to shut this down because we're all going to lose control of our wives. Okay? So I'm not saying that's the way it should be. This is Persia. <laughs> this is not God's plan for the household here. So here's what happens in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, Mehumen bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So in all of his pride and arrogance to show off all that he had, he wanted to show his wife and then in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. So I think there is a little irony happening here, where uh, this pride and and you know love of all of his stuff eventually revealed how little control he actually had of everything. Right? This guy, he's just he's just a man, and his wife tells him no. So he's mad, and so in the next couple of verses, he gets some advice. So look in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti, so this is the king talking, according to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. So it's a big deal to not come when the king calls you, no matter who you are. It's a big deal not to obey the king. But she refuses to come. She won't come. And so now the king is asking uh, his counselors, uh, the princes of Persia, seven of them, what he should do. So this is what they're going to do. They're going to write a new law using Vashti as an example at the advice of Memukin, a prince of Persia. Okay? Uh, So we won't read all of this, um, but in verse 16, Memukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So here are these guys that have been having a celebration for 187 days. Uh, You know, they're all intoxicated. It's bad. And they're concerned that they're going to lose their control over their wives there in Persia. Um, So in verse 17, he says, For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. So I think, (laughs) you know, this guy's got some skin in the game. He's worried that he's going to lose control at home. And so that's really the issue here. This national crisis has been brought about because the king uh, was a fool. And so here they are. And so he recommends that the king lay down a law um, that can't be altered, as is the way of the Persians and the Medes. And to basically say that women have to obey their husbands. Um, so if we jump down to verse 22, then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, and each man, that each man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Uh, so this is what they did. You know, the, the great rulers all hanging out there. Uh, they decided to make this new law and have this done so that the, the men wouldn't be overridden by their wives at the example of Vashti. Uh, so a few little things uh, in that. So there's that note about the laws of the Persians and the Medes that can't be altered. So this comes up later as well because King Ahasuerus alters his edict. So he first sends out an edict later in the book that says, kill all the Jews, and then he stops that. So how is he able to stop this law that he put into effect when it's, you know, according to their own law, they can't alter the law? So I think it's similar to uh, like America's stare decisis. Uh, So in the Supreme Court, there's this principle that you stick with precedent in cases. So if it's already been ruled on before, follow the precedent of the court before you and keep going that way. The exception of that is when the previous ruling was against the law, when it was a wrong ruling, an unjust thing. So I think there's probably something similar happening here where it can't be altered unless it's found to be an unjust law, which is what we find with the genocide of the Jews. Does that kinda make sense? So it's a precedent thing, I think, not like it's written in stone and will never change it, no matter what. Oh, okay. Is that how it went? Yeah, so he didn't really. He sure. Did not the he didn't alter fight. it. Yeah. He, <laughs> he just, just. He just gave them the opportunity to fight back. Okay. That's really he wasn't good. To it, but they fight for That's hilarious. So yeah, <laughs> you, if you want to fight them, then uh, then you'll be in trouble because they can fight back. <laughs> Good. Uh, That's something else that's interesting that comes up uh, later, but we won't get into that now, but good note. Uh, One other other thing to note is their postal service in Persia, Um, so you see there that they send out letters. So this comes up throughout the text because they're sending out these laws and different things and they send out these letters via courier so if you go over to chapter 3, verse 13, it's described, And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old. Little children women, and one day on the 13th. You know, all those things. And so the way their postal service worked uh, was original to them, where there would be one person who could ride a day's worth and then there'd be another person stationed there and they'd hand the message off and then they would go. So a letter could travel as many days as it took for them to ride a day's worth journey at their top speed to get there. And uh, it's a fun connection to today because um, in the Persian Wars, a book written by Herodotus. Herodotus, yeah. Um, he recorded their mail system like this. He said, These men will not be hindered from accomplishing their best speed the distance which they have to go, either by snow or rain or heat or by darkness of night. So that might sound familiar to you because that's the, the motto or slogan of the United States Postal Service, which according to Wikipedia they keep as a slogan, but they don't promise to actually get you your stuff if the weather's bad. (laughs) So, I don't know, we might have to talk to them about that. But it's actually chiseled in uh, granite outside the New York City Post Office. Um, That little sentence there is adopted by some postal workers. But they don't really come no matter what anymore. I don't know if they used to, but, but yeah, even the the postal design of this era, you know some of that carries over into what we see today. So that's a fun little historical connection. Any questions on chapter one? It's mostly about God vacating a spot to insert Esther to save the people of Israel. Yeah, Sheila. I don't
1: know if it's the same thing you're asking questions, but I wondered if the Pony Express the same thing as that you're talking about the right.
0: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'm guessing. Like
1: where they would ride from one place to another, and then somebody else would take the mail.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm guessing you're right that that pattern continued on. Yeah, it's hard to believe that you know no one had thought of that before. I think. There just wasn't that passing along of it and that dedication to actually get it there. Um, So, yeah. All right, let's jump into chapter 2. So Esther becomes queen. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided... He remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. So I don't know if we sense remorse here that the king, in his stupor, uh, made this rash decision and that led for Vashti being uh, demoted from queen. But uh, some servants have an idea in verse 2. They say, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai the king's eunuch custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given to them then let the young women who who the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti this thing pleased the king and he did so so the king desires a queen they set up a plan to find one and so that kind of sets into motion there. Um, the next couple verses explain how Esther is taken and chosen as queen. So in verse 5, In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, uh, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favour, so he readily gave her beauty preparations uh, to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So that was a lot. But, um, yeah, Esther went along with the women. Uh, She was taken to the palace. And she found favor in the sight of the custodian there of the women, and so this, again we see—you know—it's not set out right that God caused her to have favor in His eyes, but we see her moving up, and even um, being given more preparations um, than the others. Doesn't so this,
1: doesn't it say that Mordecai told her not to talk about her people? Right. So, so Mordecai- would not that be an indication that she was Jewish?
0: Not to talk about her people. Well,
1: isn't that what he says? He said right, that?
0: right. So we know that she's a Jew, but no one else does except Mordecai. So he's telling her to hide that, um, which she does until she appears before the king later on. And uh, so, yeah, that would have been that would have been tricky to keep that a secret and uh, do all that. But so this process here, um, it says that. It was about a year long of the beautification, but about four years passed between Ahasuerus uh, losing Queen Vashti and him gaining Esther. So it doesn't show up until down later on, but it talks about uh, in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign in verse 16. And if you recall from before, it's the third year when the events of Vashti take place. So that four years uh, come through here and according to the dates, about two of these years Ahasuer spent fighting in Greece, the war in Greece. Uh, So there's a four-year gap where he's off at war and his servants are preparing all these women that one of them will be queen for him. Uh, So he gets back and then in verse 12... um, The women take turns seeing if they're going to be the chosen one. So let's keep reading in verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Uh, We won't read all that. But it's... uh, It's... um, Really zooming in on the amount of preparation that it took to do this. Um, so, yeah. If we jump down to 15, verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. So, she's getting inside information from the custodian that she has favor in the eyes of. And so, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So, Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, month, which is the month of uh, Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So all that happened in about 479 B.C. And, yeah, the the details that are given are very interesting that the biblical author would take time to describe... The splendor of the king, uh, the conversation surrounding uh, Vashti being demoted, and then zooming in on Esther and the preparations that she had to go through. So they could have just said that they prepared Esther and then the king loved her. But it goes into all this detail. I'm not fully sure why that is. But we see um, God reaching out and removing Vashti and inserting Esther uh, for such a time as this as they say. So that's all we'll study for tonight from Esther. Do you guys have any questions about any of uh, chapters one and two that we studied so far? All right, the last uh, few things we'll look at is the so what, what does this mean for us? And we've talked about this already. Um, we often forget to remember God's promises, but God never forgets his promises. So even as the people who have returned to Jerusalem are kind of limping along and trying to get things going, and the people who have stayed in uh, Persia are um, struggling to you know, keep the old traditions and the religion that is the Jewish faith... Um, God doesn't. He, he never forgets His promise to Israel and He stays faithful to them. So, in a sense, I really like the theme of the book that God saves godless Israel using godless Israel. Because I think that's part of what we see going on in the world today, is that Israel is godless and God keeps them going through anything. Um, and so we just see God's faithfulness that He will not cast His people away forever. He will, in the kingdom, restore them and gather them back, and they will be His people, and He will be their God. Do you have something, think di-
1: Mordecai would have remembered or known the information from Daniel as he prophesied about the end times when God? God would redeem His people. So when he said to Esther, he said, "If you don't do this, somebody else will." Right, because right. we know that God, God said He will, will do, do this.
0: Right. Yeah, I think He definitely could have, because um, even as we read in uh, Daniel 11. the events that they're in right now were prophesied through Daniel. Good, Jim. Uh, So I listed a bunch of things from our text. God's providence, his care, um, his help is greater than all these things. So the riches of this king, um, sure, he's the richest Persian king ever, but God needed Esther in there, so he did it. (laughs) Uh, His power, again, God can overcome the power of kings, even his, um, you know, his drunkenness, that even when he was, the king was not in control with all that power, God still got done what he needed to do. He, he did what he needed, and it's, it's helpful for us because I think all of that was not great, right? That whole situation with the party and the drunkenness, and with Vashti. And God was able to use something that was really bad uh, to work out his good plan uh, for his people. Uh, the anger of the king. So, even God is using the anger of of Ahasuerus to get done what he needs to. Um, you know, it took him a while to, to cool down and be like, oh, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have gotten rid of Vashti. Um, but even in his anger, God still uh, used that for good. Our own fear, and so even as Mordecai, he's out there pacing in the court, checking on Esther, um, telling her, "Don't make sure they don't find out that you're a Jew. Um, I think that would make her uh, not an option to be queen. It would, it would mean that she couldn't be queen if they found out she was a Jew. And so, even in the fear of the people that God uses to save his people, God uses them, and he, he helps them and he accomplishes have, his purposes. Did
1: he have the plan already? God? Mordecai.
0: Mordecai? Or, uh, not
1: Mordecai, but
0: Haman. Haman. Haman? Well, at least in the, the text as we see it, it comes up later, where Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, and next Haman gets mad. Tune in next time. That's right. <laughs> Um, and then space limitations. This is kind of a fun one. You think about the people who are back in Jerusalem. They don't even know this is going on. And God is working there and he's working here. And he's making it all work. Kind of the theme we had for this part two is that everyone almost dies. <laughs> and the people back in, in Jerusalem, they don't know about the, all this, these things going on and Haman hating Mordecai. And, but God uh, works beyond the space limitations that we have. He's omnipresent, and so he's able to do that. Uh, A couple other things I wrote down is um, even that he works beyond our own ignorance. So at the time Esther was going this way and Mordecai was going this way, they didn't know that Haman was going to, you know, get the king to do this decree. God was working beyond what they even knew was coming. Um, And then, yeah, timing. You know, that God, in his perfect timing, remove Vashti and put in Esther, and thinking through, you know, my story with the dinosaurs, you know. Who could have planned that I would have been reading Job 40 and 41? I couldn't have, you know. It's like, who reads reads that randomly and then someone asks you about dinosaurs, you know. So God's timing is perfect, and uh, we can trust him. Um, And then, yeah, just a reminder that whichever perspective you take on where they're at spiritually, God always works despite us. You know, we're not worthy vessels for His service. Um, he, anything good that comes from us is from His Spirit working through us. And uh, yeah, just to remember that even as Esther and Mordecai are heroes, that God uses them to save His people, uh, we don't hope in heroes. We don't hope in people. We don't hope in men. We don't hope in women. We hope in God. Uh, Anyone else we hope in will let us down, Uh, so place your hope in God. Anybody have any questions about anything we covered tonight? We, uh, in last week's handout, I had the self-study for Zechariah one through eight, and so for this week is nine through fourteen. If you want to read through those, and these are the very messianic ones. So there's a lot that occurs in that that we look back on, like Jesus coming in on a donkey and things like that. So some of those verses will be more familiar to you. And I encourage you to read through Zechariah, which occurred at the time of Ezra. So thank you all for coming. I'll close us in prayer and we can be dismissed. Father God, we thank you that you are in control of all things. And even when we don't know what's coming, you're already working to work those things out and we can trust you. And so help us to hope in you this week. And even when things don't look uh, right, And uh, we seek uh, to trust you. Help us to do that. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.